Would you join me in prayer, please? Lord, your word tells us to give honor to whom honor is due. And so, Lord, even on a day like today where we worship you, where we glorify you, we recognize that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. As our dear brother Brian had already prayed, Lord, we thank you for the gifts that you have blessed us with, the the gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have blessed us materially. But Lord, we also thank you for the gift of those who were willing to sacrifice their own lives in order to have a nation like what we have in the United States, to be able to express ourselves in freedom of worship, to be able to worship as our conscience are dictated and as your word applies to us. And Lord, we are so grateful for such a privilege, and we know that there are those who went before us that allow us to have so. So Lord, allow our thoughts to be with those men and women who have served our nation, and allow us, Lord, to remember them during this all-important weekend. And then, Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Bible, which teaches us to give honor to whom honor is due, especially to our God. And we thank you, Lord, for those that you have put before us, godly teachers who impart sound biblical wisdom to us. And so, Lord, we pray for our brother Robert. We pray, Lord, that that he would heed the message of your word and that, Lord, you would allow him to be faithful in the task that you have called him to. We pray, Lord, that as a church body, we would ever be in prayer for him and Lindsay and for Joshua and Lucy and Thomas, and that, Lord, as they go, they know that they have not only the body of providence behind them, but also the full power of the Holy Spirit. So may you be magnified and worshiped and adored this morning. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, this morning we are gathered as the Church of Jesus Christ in order to acknowledge the gifts that God has granted Robert Smith as a minister of the gospel. We recognize that he has been set apart by the Lord to perform a dedicated task of the gospel, specifically that of church planting. And in our staff meetings, we have jokingly referred to this day as Robert Fest. And while we say that in jest, we know that it would be wrong to magnify Robert. And while events this morning and this afternoon would appear that way, I want to be clear that we are not praising Robert, but rather we are giving praise to the God and what he is doing in Robert and what we foresee he, Lindsay, Joshua, Lucy, and Thomas doing in the very near future. For several years, and particularly this past year and five months, we have seen the Lord work mightily through you, Robert. Therefore, this church is sending you on a quest, brother. Your king is worthy of such a quest. You and your family get the honor and the privilege of establishing a new work in Tennessee. We've seen your passion for the gospel, your love for the people of Franklin County, and your desire to make known the name of Jesus. And it's our honor to recognize your calling and send you out. The message this morning, what ministers of old would call a charge to the newly ordained, is specific for you on this occasion. But we all would be remiss in thinking that any message from the Bible is only for a single individual. Therefore, church, you too need to listen. You need to pay attention to this sermon and how you can support Robert in prayer, how you can hold him accountable, 
but also that you would have realistic expectations of what a minister of the gospel is supposed to do. Sadly, we live in a culture where pastors are expected to have skills that are not outlined in the scriptures. We all feel the pressure that somehow we're supposed to be CEOs, fundraisers, recruiters, political pundits, entertainers in the pulpit, and most recently, virologists. Even within our own skill set, there is a wrong-headed expectation that a pastor is supposed to be greater than any other member of the church, capable of ministry greater than the body itself, and a few might even think greater than the Lord Jesus is able to minister. There will be pressure on Robert to conform to those ideas, and Robert, you must not allow that to happen. Your family, your church family, and even your God does not need you to fall into the trap that you are more than the Savior in any particular situation. So this morning, I hope to guide you through two passages of Scripture that will outline your primary duties as a church planner. And we'll see the strategy of the Apostle Paul when he planted churches in a new area by focusing on his work in the city of Thessalonica. So let us begin by examining what Paul actually did when he reached that city. And then we can see from his first letter, uh, see that from his first letter to them. Then we'll see how he carried on this activity from the historical account in Acts chapter 17. And then answer the question of why this is relevant to you. So that will be the basis of our outline this morning. What? How and why. And church, pay attention. You need to listen as well. You need to know the standard which you are to hold your own pastors to. You also need to have reasonable expectations to ensure you're not putting them on a pedestal beyond any other member of the church or the Lord Jesus as your head. So let's begin by looking at Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 again. Now, just to provide a little context for the letter, Thessalonica is in the province of Macedonia, and Paul only got to spend a few weeks in that city to plant a church before persecution forced him to leave. And as he departed, he was greatly concerned for the spiritual health of that small body of believers. So he sends back his young protege, Timothy, he sends him back to Thessalonica to check on them. And Timothy returns to Paul and reports that the church is thriving. And in chapter 2 of the letter, Paul wants to emphasize why the church is doing so well by drawing attention to what he did while he was in the city. And it essentially boils down to four activities here. Number one, Paul was an example of someone willing to sacrifice and suffer. Paul was an example of someone willing to sacrifice and suffer. The reason Paul was in Thessalonica in the first place was because he had been illegally jailed in the Macedonian city of Philippi the week before. And even though he was released from prison, his activities were so disruptive that the city officials asked him to leave. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 16. And you would think that such hardships would cause Paul to shut up, to keep the gospel to himself, to not draw any more attention to what he was doing. But the message of the good news of Jesus Christ is too important. He must proclaim it. So he made his way to Thessalonica to do so. And Paul writes here in the first two verses of chapter 2, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. By being willing to sacrifice and suffer, Paul proves how important is the message of the gospel. It is worthy of the sacrifice. And Robert and Lindsay, by leaving the comforts of Huntsville and 
Madison City Schools and your church family, we hope others will recognize the sacrifices that you are making. Second, we read that Paul conducted his ministry with absolute integrity. He conducted his ministry with integrity. He gave no reason for anyone to doubt his teachings or his word and the way that he conducted himself. In verses 3 through 6, we read that Paul made sure that his hearers knew that he had no other motivation than pleasing God, not seeking money, not seeking individual praise or power, nor glory. In verses 9 through 12, the Thessalonians found nothing lacking in Paul's work ethic. What he exhorted in them to do in their own lives, he walked by his own example. They were all witnesses to it. Paul wrote in verses 11 through 12, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Robert, we can give witness to your life as well. In your service to us, we have seen your conduct and it has been exemplary. And it's that type of life that will help validate the truthfulness of the gospel. Paul was willing to sacrifice. He walked in integrity. And third, he shared his own resources with the Thessalonians. Verses 7 and 8. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Not only did the apostle share his possessions, whether that might be food or money, but Paul made himself available to the Thessalonians. In this day and age, our most valuable commodity is time. They had lots of questions. They needed answers, which meant they needed his time. So Paul granted it to them. And last, we see what was the most important activity in Paul's ministry. He proclaimed the word of God that magnified the gospel. All other activities, the sacrifices, the integrity, the sharing of self, all were subservient to this one. Delivering the word of God was primary. All the others were done so that Paul might gain the trust of his listeners. That's verse 13. Look at that. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. It is the Word that radically transformed the lives of the Thessalonians. Notice how Paul put this, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. It was not the suffering of Paul that was at work within them. It was not the integrity of Paul that was at work within them. It was not the resources of Paul that was continuing the work in them after he left. It was the Word of God. For the Word of God is living And it is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And Robert, this is what you must give and deliver most of all as an ordained minister. That is what you have been training for, not just to give of yourself, but that you may teach and preach God's word in Tennessee. Because all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Your own belief in the word will allow you to share what you have with others. In fact, you can't help yourself. Your own belief in the word will bring about the integrity that you need. Your own belief in the word will bring you to the point where you would sacrifice much and suffer much because he is worthy. But you must give them the Bible. 
So how did Paul do this? If this was the primary activity, how did Paul bring it about? Well, the historian Luke tells us how in Acts chapter 17. If you will, turn with me there. This is found on page 926 of your pew Bible. And this is where we'll see Paul first encounter the Thessalonians. And as you're turning there, let me just remind you of the background once again. Paul had just been chased out of Philippi, but he was undaunted. He had to continue his mission to proclaim the gospel, so he came to Thessalonica. And he began where he knew there would be those seeking the Messiah. He went to the synagogues. Now, Robert, please don't think this is a license to steal people from other churches. You should not read that into the text, and no shepherd should ever do that. But Paul went to the place where there was common ground between himself and the seekers. The majority of those non-believers attending the synagogue were looking for the Messiah. And that is the lesson for you. Seek out those who are looking for the Savior. They may not know it yet that they are, but spend time and invest in those who are willing to listen. And Paul spent three to four weeks engaging the Thessalonians with the word. We read here in verse 1, Now they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia. They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving what was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Now there are three verbs here in verses 2 through 3 that explains how Paul was conveying the Bible to the Thessalonians. First, in verse 2, we're told Paul reasoned with the Thessalonians. We see Paul doing the same in the city of Athens in Acts chapter 18, verse 4. It says there, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And he did so again in the city of Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, verse 8. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months he he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. The Greek word for reason is dialogamai. It literally means to argue a case. This is not a discussion between individuals, but making a clear case, marshalling all of the evidence to make it as compelling as possible to persuade his audience. The second verb is paired with the third in verse 3. It's translated as explaining. In Greek, it's dianoigon. It literally means opening. It's the same word used of Jesus in Mark chapter 7, verse 34, when Jesus opens the ears of the deaf. And again in Luke chapter 24, verse 31, when Jesus opens the eyes of the travelers to Emmaus. And also again in Acts 16, verse 14, when the Lord opened Lydia's heart to hear the gospel. Robert, this is what you are to do. You are to open the scriptures to your congregation so they may see and hear what the word portrays. And the third verb is translated as proving or demonstrating, depending on your translation. In verse 3, it is the Greek word paratithemai. Translated literally, it means to put alongside. Now, we've seen a similar word recently in our study of Matthew 13 when we've spoken of parables. Parabole is related to paratithemi. In both cases, two things are compared. In Matthew 13, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to his illustrations in Acts chapter 7, or in, to his illustrations. And in Acts chapter 17, Paul is comparing Jesus' actions with the Old Testament verses concerning the Messiah. But note here that all three verbs, reasoning, explaining, 
demonstrating all point to one concept, clarity towards a biblical theology. Clarity towards a biblical theology. A biblical theology means you are presenting God's overall plan to redeem fallen humanity and to restore that fallen humanity to their proper kingdom without sin. Making that clear is exactly what an expository ministry is all about. We teach the Word to explain God's plan of redemption. And that is what you must preach. Having healthy marriages and being fiscally accountable and living good lives might be benefits of hearing the Word, but that is not primary. The central subject we are to preach is the gospel, God's plan to save humanity through His Son, Jesus Christ. Look at this again, verses 2 and 3. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. That is the goal, to proclaim Jesus as the Savior from our sins. Robert, if you give them the Bible, then they will see the vision of Jesus Christ. Paul was making it clear that the entire Old Testament was pointing towards Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This was not a running commentary on the Bible. It was not an academic lecture. Paul was proclaiming and proving that Jesus is the Messiah and mighty to save. And Robert, that is your role. Your ministry is to dedicate yourself to the study of the Bible. You are to understand its overall message, and you are to make it as clear as possible that you can as you teach it. What your new congregation needs more than anything else is spiritual nourishment of the Bible because it is the Word of God that will be at work in the life of the believers long after you leave this earth. So in your preaching and teaching ministry, you are accountable to three questions. Here they are. Number one, have the hearers understood? Have the hearers understood? And by understanding, I don't mean they are transformed by the Word. That is the job of the Holy Spirit, not you. But you must make sure you know your congregation, that you aren't using words or jargon that are above them, terms that they've not been taught before. And if they don't understand, you must teach them up and guide them in their understanding. Help them to overcome any ignorance in the Word. And the second question you must ask yourself is, has the Bible been properly and fully made, been made plain? Has the Bible been properly and fully made plain? You don't teach opinions. You don't teach novel concepts and ideas that you might be exploring in the moment. You teach the Bible fully, and you make it as plain as possible. And the third question you must ask is, has the material been set out in an orderly fashion? Has it been set out in an orderly fashion? We read in Acts chapter 11, verse 4, Peter presents his testimony, his case, from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah in an orderly fashion to the Jews at Ephesus. Or, sorry, at the... Uh, uh, to the Jews in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 18, verse 26, Apollos is trained by Prisca and Aquila, and he is trained to use the Scriptures and to use them in an orderly fashion to explain them to the Jews in Ephesus. And you too, Robert, must set out your material in a well-prepared, well-thought-out, well-ordered manner. You don't just wing your sermons. You are serving a fine meal with the Word of God. Treat it as such, not like slop to be dished out in a bowl with just whatever comes to mind in the moment. Have your hearers understood? Has the Bible been properly and fully been made plain? Has the material been set out in an orderly fashion? That is your responsibility. 
So let me explain in the final minutes we have remaining here why this is so important. I'm going to give you three reasons why. First, the church is not to be made in your image. The church is not to be made in your image. If you preach the word in an expository manner, you will avoid making the church what you think it should be and what other fallen human beings think it should be. Preaching the word consistently ensures it will be what God wants it to be. I see too many churches these days that are based on the power of the preacher's personality. And when he leaves, they're at a loss at how to conduct themselves. Rather than merely having the next man step up and preach the word, they have to seek out another popular speaker. If you preach Christ, then your congregation will remain with Christ, not with any mere man. Second, the reason you preach the gospel of the Bible is because the church is not made in your power. It is built in the power of the Holy Spirit through His Word. And this is so liberating. If you think the church is dependent upon you, you will burn out and flame out quick. If you believe it's built on the power of the Holy Spirit, it will thrive as long as the man in the pulpit preaches the Bible, no matter who that might be. You sow the Word, and the Lord will not let it return void. The church will continue long after you depart. It will be the word of God at work in the believers of Franklin County. And last, by preaching the word faithfully, you will know and your congregation will know that the church was not made for your glory. There will be times in your ministry where you will have to endure your people. They will have itching ears and want you to preach politics or opinions or pragmatism. And you will have dry seasons where it seems there's just no growth in your folks and and you're tempted to add some kind of dramatic entrances to the sanctuary or, or special lighting or elephants and ponies and perhaps a trapeze or two. It's the idea that if you only do X and Y, then certainly these things will follow afterwards. But you must remember, your future church does not exist for their own glory to brag about how big they've become nor do they exist for your glory to prove what an excellent leader you are. They are not your bride. They belong to Jesus. And like John the Baptist, what kind of groomsman would you be if you lusted after our Savior's bride? You remain faithful in your task. Trust the process. Preach the word in season and out of season, and the Lord will reward your efforts. Robert, give them the Bible. And the church you attend will be conformed to the image of Christ. It will be empowered by the Holy Spirit, and it will reveal the glory of the living God. Let's pray. Lord, I know that probably as Robert was listening, he he was probably quaking in his shoes there a little bit. But that's good. It's good that he feels that way. Because he would, should know to ask himself, no one is sufficient for this task. That's why he must preach Christ. Because Christ is sufficient for all. And so, Lord, we pray that you would work in him and through him to be able to understand the scriptures, that your Holy Spirit would make it known, the truth of your word, And that, Lord, Robert would convey the truth of your word to those he has been called to preach to. We pray, Lord, that you would help him to keep his life pure, 
to not allow him to get distracted from the call that you have placed upon his life, but that, Lord, you would allow him to feel your presence, Lord, as he preaches, as he teaches, as he ministers on your behalf. We pray, Lord, that as a congregation, for all those pastors that you have called to be over us, we pray, Lord, that you would work in them in the same way. We pray, Lord, that we would hold them accountable, that we would not seek to draw them away from the high calling that you called them to, to teach us in order to do other tasks, but that we would trust you to be the one who actually leads us. And so, Lord, we pray that your son, Jesus Christ, would be glorified in Franklin County. We pray, Lord, that we would do whatever we can to assist this dear brother and this dear sister and their family to be able to magnify the name of Jesus. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.